Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, welcome. The vaccination is underway, and uh, of course, there are concerns. Not, uh, not unexpected, because whenever you have the uh, institution of uh, some sort of novel medical intervention, uh, there will always be some issues that arise. <clears throat> Of course, the major concern uh, right now for people who have managed to get the vaccine or are in line to get it, um, concern is about the side effects because there have been some reported. Most of them were uh, in people who were known to be allergenic and in fact uh, were people who had EpiPens with them for some other uh, allergy. Although there was at least one case of someone who had an anaphylactic reaction with no prior history of any kind of allergies. However, uh, relative to the number of uh, in fact, injections that have been already carried out, uh, these numbers are, are very low. And it certainly is not unexpected. I'll tell you what my biggest concern here is about the vaccines being rolled out. Well, I have several concerns. One is that as more and more people get vaccinated and as we start reaching into the hundreds of thousands and possibly millions of, of uh, recipients, there will be some deaths associated uh, with the timing of the vaccine unrelated to the vaccine. This is just because there is a natural death rate. People do die from heart attacks, strokes, and various other uh, issues. And if uh, this occurs in a time frame that is relatively close to the vaccine, I think there will be a tendency to uh, connect it to the vaccine. This is uh, an association, and it is not necessarily a cause and effect relationship. And we've discussed this many times in the past, the difference between association and cause and effect. Uh, in, in Africa, uh, some tribes believe that uh, the crowing of a rooster makes the sun come up. Uh, of course, that is not a cause and effect relationship. That is an association. So just because there are some serious uh, reactions, and there have been very few in association with the vaccine, it doesn't mean the vaccine is causing it. Although, of course, uh, it certainly is a possibility because any vaccine will have some side reactions. Of course, the, the real numbers to take into, into account here are the risk of contracting COVID-19 and the risk associated with the vaccine. And the risk of contracting the disease uh, certainly is bigger than the risk associated with, with the uh, vaccination. I have been asked over the past week numerous times whether or not this messenger RNA vaccine and both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines fall into that category, whether they can alter our DNA. Can the RNA somehow insert itself into the DNA so that we will become genetic mutants? The reason that these questions are asked are, is because there is a lot of uh, such pseudo-information being purveyed on the Internet. No, that cannot happen. Uh, if you know the, the concept behind messenger RNA and what it can and cannot do, it cannot incorporate itself into DNA. The messenger RNA that is in the vaccine just codes for the protection for the production of the spike protein. That's the protein you see on the surface of the virus. This messenger RNA goes directly into the cytoplasm of the cell where the manufacture of the protein occurs. It cannot enter the nucleus of the cell where DNA is located. So there's just no way 
that the RNA will get incorporated into the DNA and change anyone's genome. This is not an issue. Of course, there are other possibilities. There is the, uh, the chance that the messenger RNA itself will provoke an allergic reaction in some people. It is unlikely because that uh, molecule has been modified in such a way as to reduce that uh, type of allergenicity. But that doesn't mean that um, it cannot happen. So this notion of people becoming genetic mutants, uh, you can put that out of your mind. I, I wrote a long article uh, uh, about this on our website and also on my own Facebook page, which you can check out. The website, of course, is www.mcgill.ca slash OSS, because uh, I felt the need to do that. It's a rather extensive article. Uh, and you'll have to, to you know, read it carefully, but I think after you've read it, you will convince yourself that it is not possible to become a genetic mutant because of this vaccine. And I also discussed exactly how this uh, vaccine works, and I think that should be somewhat comforting. Now, we heard uh, over the last couple of days of a mutation in the virus itself uh, that has occurred in Britain, and virologists have uh, uh, warned the government uh, in Britain about this. <clears throat> As a result of this uh, mutation, uh, many European countries have now cut down on travel to the UK, uh, trying to prevent this mutated virus from getting to, to Europe. So how much of a worry should this be? Well, first of all, uh, it is very natural for viruses out in the environment to, to mutate. The question is, where in the genetic code of the virus does the mutation occur? What we are concerned about here, as far as the vaccines go, is about any mutation that might occur in the spike protein of the virus, because that is the one that is targeted by all of the vaccine technologies. And so far, no mutation in the spike protein has been noted. All the mutations have been in other parts of the uh, genome of the virus, not in the parts that code for the production of this uh, spike protein. What is somewhat concerning is that the mutated virus seems to be more infective uh, than the uh, virus that we have become familiar uh, with. And uh, that is, of course, a concern because it means that more people can be affected. On the other hand, a virus that, that uh, infects uh, very, very easily is also a virus that tends to be uh, less lethal and will produce less severe disease. And that is because what a virus tries to do is survive. And it doesn't survive if it kills its host. So uh, in order to infect more people, it means that the host has to be kept alive so that the virus can reproduce inside their cells. So uh, the more infective a virus is, in general, the less likely it is to be lethal. But obviously, we don't like the, the notion of being uh, infected in, in the first place. But anyway, this is, is, is not a, a critical development, and it... it uh, is very, very unlikely to affect the uh, efficacy of the uh, vaccine. Talking about efficacy, efficacy is not the same as effectiveness, although these terms in the, in the uh, lay literature are very often uh, uh, just interchanged. Efficacy is what is, it, what is determined by uh, ongoing clinical trials 
when you have a large number of people, as we had in the Pfizer and Moderna trials, you can determine the efficacy of the vaccine by comparing how many people have been infected in the placebo group compared to the group who's getting the vaccine. So that's where we get this efficacy and the 95% number that has been so widely bandied about. <clears throat> Effectiveness is what happens in the general population. And that we don't know yet. Uh, the question is, what will happen when lots and lots of people get this vaccine? Will we see effectiveness in the general population? Because you can't always predict what will happen uh, out there uh, based upon the clinical trials, which have, of course, far fewer subjects than what we are going to see when the vaccine is, is widely disseminated. So there is a difference between efficacy and effectiveness. The efficacy right now looks like to be 95%. We don't know the effectiveness yet. We will only know that <clears throat> after enough people have been uh, vaccinated. Okay, uh, we do have to take a break here. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, and I chat with you here every Sunday afternoon trying to answer your questions about science. We're going to take a break, check traffic, and after that we'll talk a little bit about uh, holiday movies, and then after that we're going to, to discuss carbon dioxide and the greenhouse effect. Stay with us. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. As you know, I always ask a question so that you can exercise your mind. Here it is for today. What is Black Center Syndrome? What is Black Center Syndrome? If you know, you give us a call, 514-790-0800. That's also where you can text us at 514-800. So 514-800 for texting, 514-790-0800. If you know the answer to what Black Center Syndrome is. There's one other aspect of uh, vaccination that I want to bring up. Uh, as you might imagine, the quacks are very quick to jump on any kind of bandwagon that is rolling by. And boy, are they taking large leaps. Uh, there are all kinds of people on the internet offering vaccines. None of this is legitimate. <clears throat> there is no internet site that is offering legitimate vaccines. All they will do is steal your money. Similarly, there are no products out there that have been shown to somehow mitigate this disease. Of course, there are numerous uh, individuals, numerous companies on the web who claim that they have found the secret with all kinds of potions and lotions uh, that can counter COVID-19. <clears throat> None of this is so. Uh, there is no uh, gimmick that works. Uh, there certainly are legitimate medications that work. We know that. We know that dexamethasone works for hospitalized uh, patients. Uh, we know that monoclonal antibodies work. Uh, but there's nothing out there on any of these uh, websites that claim to have found an answer that has eluded the scientific community. There's nothing out there that has any semblance of efficacy. So just forget it. Do not get to be taken in by any of this nonsense of people who are all offering uh, alternative vaccines, cheap vaccines, or who claim that somehow they can get you ahead of the line. There is no such, uh, no such thing. Uh, forget it. All right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about movies. 
One of my favorite movies, The Andromeda Strain, and I'll recommend you watch that this holiday season. This is a movie that came out in 1969, written by Michael Crichton. Uh, Michael Crichton, of course, is the one who later terrified us with the velociraptors in, in Jurassic Park. <clears throat> Crichton uh, was a physician, so of course he had pretty good scientific uh, knowledge. And The Andromeda Strain is a movie about a satellite that falls back down to Earth in the 1960s. Of course, there was a lot of talk about satellites that falls back down on, on to Earth, contaminated with an extraterrestrial microbe. And uh, this microbe kills all of the occupants of the town where the satellite lands, except for two, the town drunk and uh, a crying baby. And the question is, how is it that these two were saved? Turns out that this microbe can only exist and replicate at the pH of human blood, which is about uh, 7.35 to 7.45. pH, of course, uh, uh, stands for power of hydrogen, and it's a, it's a measure of acidity. And the body cannot uh, work outside of that small range of pH. Well, it turns out that the virus can only multiply in that pH, and that's how it, it kills off all of the, uh, the people. The town drunk ran out of wine and any other kind of alcoholic beverage, so he resorted to drinking sterno. You know what sterno is? Sterno is that uh, canned heat that you see underneath serving dishes in, uh, in restaurants. <clears throat> you remember restaurants? There used to be these places where we'd go out and sit down around the table, eat, be served by waiters, uh, nice elegant atmosphere. Restaurants, yeah, relic of the past. Uh, so in any case, uh, uh, in many self-service restaurants, there were those large trays with the sterno can underneath them to keep the, the food warm. Well, the combustible ingredient in those little cans is methanol. And uh, methanol is an alcohol, and it will give you a high if you drink it. So the town drunk resorted to drinking the alcohol, and... Uh, in the body, methanol is metabolized to formic acid. So the formic acid just pushed the pH of his blood outside of the range of 7.35 to 7.45 so that the virus was, or the microbe, they didn't call it a virus, the microbe was unable to survive. Luckily for him, he didn't drink too much of the methanol because methanol is very toxic. Of course, the story uh, would not have worked if he died from drinking the sterno. The little baby, whenever you're crying, you are exhaling a lot of breath, including carbon dioxide. And when you lose a lot of carbon dioxide in your breath, uh, that also changes the pH because carbon dioxide is what acidifies your, your blood as carbonic acid. In any case, if you exhale a lot of carbon dioxide, your pH goes up, and that's why the little baby survived, because his pH just wandered out of the 7.35 to 7.45 uh, range. So there you go. That's the story behind the Andromeda strain. And uh, in the early 1970s, it was made into a movie. And a uh, very, very good movie. I suggest that you watch it. Much, much later, it was also made into a series uh, on, uh, on TV, which was not quite as good as the original. So I would suggest you watch the original uh, movie. <clears throat> 
this is a time, the holiday season, when people do have uh, uh, time to sit down and watch movies, and of course with the pandemic even more so. And uh, there are a couple of uh, good science movies that I think you would enjoy. One is Radioactive, which is the story of Marie Curie. And uh, it is very true to the real life of, of Marie Curie and uh, describes her discovery uh, of, of radium and, and polonium. Polonium, of course, was named after Poland, her um, country of, of origin. So I would suggest that that is a very good movie to watch. And uh, for those of you who are interested in, in older films, which are uh, also very well done, uh, Paul Ehrlich and the Magic Bullet. It's a great movie. This goes back to the 1940s. It's uh, a movie starring Edward G. Robinson, who plays the role of Paul Ehrlich, uh, a physician uh, who uh, basically develops the first antibiotic called Salversan. Salversan stood for safe arsenic. Arsphenamine was the actual name of the drug, and it was the first time that any substance was developed that could treat syphilis, which of course was a scourge at that time. And uh, so I would recommend that uh, that movie, Paul Ehrlich and the, the Magic Bullet. And I'm sure if you just do a little bit of Googling, you will find where you can stream that. You'll, these old movies can easily be found and, and usually uh, streamed for free. If you're looking for a more modern movie, The Martian is very good. Of course, it falls into the realm of science fiction, but uh, it also has some very solid science in it because the astronaut who is marooned on Mars has to put all of his scientific knowledge to use in order to escape from, uh, from Mars. So those are some interesting movies for you to watch. Okay, you are listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Uh, we're going to take a break, check out what's happening in the world, and we'll be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Just before we get around talking about climate change and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the question that I asked, what is Black Center Syndrome? We have Jean-Pierre online, and I'm sure he has the answer because he always does. Jean-Pierre. Jean-Pierre? Jean-Pierre? He's gone. We lost Jean-Pierre. I thought that he would have the answer. Okay. Uh, the question is, what is Black Center Syndrome? If you think you know the answer, you give us a call, 514-790-0800. But right now, I have a guest on the line, Terry Lucas, who's a professor of uh, engineering, but has a great interest in atmospheric chemistry, carbon dioxide, and the greenhouse effect and climate change. So, Terry, welcome to the show. Thank you. And uh, before we get into any of the, the details, maybe you can just uh, tell people how you got interested in this uh, subject, because this is not something generally that uh, uh, you. What are you, a mechanical engineer? Or, uh, yes, that's right. Mechanical. Yeah. It's generally not not a, a subject that a mechanical engineer uh, takes so much interest in. So how did it all happen? Well, I just have a curiosity in general about the sciences. I read a lot. You know, I go through the news groups, and uh, I like to find out things, medical, uh, anything at all, really. Um, and climate change, of course, keeps coming up in the media, so I keep running into it. And I guess the way it started was that um, I often saw, you know, reports and statements made by the media that seemed to me to be perhaps unlikely. And then I would go and research a little bit and find out that, you know, that really isn't right. So I got this perception that 
um, a lot of the information out there, of course, climate change is real, but a lot of the details are not well explained or well understood in the general media and maybe even the public. So I, I thought there might be a, a gap there. And uh, even though when you say my background is mechanical engineering, it is, of course. But on the other hand, if you look at climate change as a subject, uh, there are literally hundreds of sub-disciplines in there that no one could be a real expert in. So I thought it might be an opportunity for me to try and integrate it, let's say, and learn more about it. And, and so I started writing about it. Well, certainly climate change is real. I think that is just scientifically incontestable. And unfortunately, because of the uh, pandemic, it has kind of been forced to the black back burner. Uh, but um, the problem is not going away. The problem is, no, of course, <laughs> it, is, it is very real. And... Uh, Obviously, there are a lot of people out there who, for lack of better expression, we've, we've called uh, you know, climate change deniers, uh, who basically believe that while there may be some change in the climate, it's not due to human activity. So I'm sure that, that with all of your looking into this and, and now writing a book on it, uh, you've taken into account the human activity. So, well, absolutely. So how, um, how, do we, how do we go about convincing the deniers that human activity indeed is playing a large role in the increase in the carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere? Well, I mean, the first chapter of my book is exactly that. And, um, you know, just explaining the details of how the greenhouse effect works, perhaps in a little bit more detail than you might find, you know, anywhere else. Um, and then uh, just showing the evidence, you know. Now, I think that, again, that might be what's missing out there is the evidence is not that easy to find, actually. Uh, but so I tried to summarize that as best I could. Like the first chapter is, yes, this is real. Here is why. And then the book goes on from there. Because many of the deniers will, you know, show you graphs over the years and going back on, you know, as, as long as, as temperatures have been, you know, re recorded, that there have been ups and downs, you know, all the time, and that we're just now experiencing, you know, one of those ups and will then have a down. Uh, right. you know, how, how do we argue against that, that, saying that this is not just the general variation that we have seen? Yeah, again, there's a lot of that kind of data, I would say cherry-picked data by certain people out there. Uh, but if you dig deep enough, you know, you can find a plethora of information going back centuries that shows very clearly that this is a change brought about by human activity because it's coinciding exactly with the, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. You know, so that data is there. It's, it's in my book. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think the deniers are, are quietly going away, really. It's a, it might be now almost obsolete to say that there's a lot of denial out there. It's becoming less and less important, I would say. You know, uh, even just sort, sort of in general scientific thinking, when you consider all the changes since the Industrial Revolution, the, the uh, transportation industry, the ships going all over the place, the billions of cars driving around, the buses, the, the trucks, the airplanes flying all over the place, 
all of the industrial plants that, that burn petroleum for various reasons and produce carbon dioxide, it makes no sense that with all of this spewing out of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that it should not have an effect. Uh, we're talking about billions of tons that have been you know, dispensed into the, uh, into the atmosphere. So I, I think it's, it's just not contestable. What, of course, is, is much more difficult to answer is what we should do about it. So what would you say, I mean, to the average person? Uh, obviously, we can't really an, uh, address industry here and, you know, what, what they should do. But what can the average person do uh, in order to make some sort of contribution to reducing the, uh, the chance for increased CO2 in the atmosphere? Well, I think the answer is the average person needs to consume less. And maybe that's not only energy. But uh, anything that you consume has used energy to be made and manufactured, you know. Uh, now, that's obviously not a, a straightforward solution to just tell everybody, you know, stop buying things and stop using things. But really, uh, the chain goes back to, to energy and almost anything you do. Of course, the obvious thing is buying smaller cars and uh, using public transit uh, but maybe also, you know, you can get involved. People can get involved in uh, getting information out there and and also get involved in convincing their governments uh, the path forward, you know. Well, you know, even small changes add up to to big results. So even things like, you know, taking a bike uh, to work instead of driving a car or if you must drive, carpooling, uh, you know, one single person is not going to make that much difference. But when you have potentially millions of people making these small changes, then you can have, you can have a, some sort of an effect. Oh, of course, absolutely. It all adds up. There's 7 billion people or thereabouts. And, right. and uh, if everybody takes that kind of a step, it will certainly add up. Now, I know that your, your book is not out yet. Uh, what is your working title and when can we expect it? Well, the working title is Quench the Fire. <laughs> That's a good title. Yeah, which has a couple of different meanings, as I explain in the book. Um, as far as publication goes, I'm just in the process now of submitting it to various Canadian publishers. Uh, so I guess I can't promise a date because no one has promised me a date. <laughs> well, we can look forward to it because I know that the samples that you sent me uh, certainly look like they have been extremely well-researched. And it is very well written and very understandable, which is exactly the kind of book that we need to get the public uh, to read. So, well, that's a, thank you for saying that. And that was my objective to try and there are a lot of charts and graphs and things in there. But on the other hand, you can you can just read through and hopefully even the uninitiated can follow the story. You know. So, yes, and I can vouch that that is true. So we will look forward to it. And when it is out there, we'll have you back and we'll have a further discussion. That's great. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you very Thanks. much. For that was uh, Terry Lucas, who's a mechanical engineering professor, but is uh, writing a book on uh, climate change and CO2 in the atmosphere. And the uh, bits of it that I have seen are really very, very good. So we'll talk about this uh, sometime in the future when the book is out. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll take a break and come back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. 
Last week, I didn't get an answer to my uh, question about Queen Victoria's favorite food that she apparently ate every day. And I said that it was something that was cut into small pieces and parboiled with a bit of salt for a minute, then drained and tossed with parsley, salt, pepper, lemon juice, and a smidge of shallot. Once done, it was served by spreading on crisp toast. Question was, what was this delicacy? Well, believe it or not, it was bone marrow. In fact, European diners in the 18th century often used an, uh, a marrow scoop which was sort of a, a narrow spoon made of silver, long, thin, and it had a, a thin bowl at the end, and uh, that was a table implement for removing marrow from a bone. Bone marrow, uh, it's that spongy tissue inside bones, and it contains stem cells that you've heard so much about. The stem cells can develop into red blood cells that carry oxygen through your body, the white blood cells that fight infections, and the platelets that help with uh, blood clotting and uh, bone marrow transplants you probably heard of in the treatment of diseases such as, as leukemia. Anyway, bone marrow is high in calories and fat. In 100 grams, there are about 85 grams of fat. It also contains some protein, vitamin B12, riboflavin, collagen, and uh, conjugated linoleic acid. Uh, it is not what one would call you know, a healthy food, but you don't eat it because of uh, its health. It's something that you would occasionally have, not like Queen Victoria who had it every day, uh, but uh, it tastes good. And I remember you know, eating it when I was younger. In fact, I've, I've eaten it since then too, although not, not very often. Uh, it uh, is great. Uh, and uh, I've um, when I make cholent, and some of you will know what that is, that's a... Uh, what can I tell you? It's sort of a bean broth, and it's a traditional uh, European uh, food. When I make that, I make it with bones that have marrow inside, and boy, does that ever uh, taste good. But you don't want to have that uh, too often. Also, it, it uh, seems that I don't have uh, an answer to my question about uh, the black center syndrome. I thought that I would get an answer to that, but uh, since no answer has come about, let me give you the answer. Black center syndrome is a condition that strikes bananas, which are the most popular fruit in the world. Actually, you know what? The banana is, is classified as a berry. We'll discuss that another time. Anyway, black center syndrome uh, comes from improper handling of bananas during transport or at the store. You know, whenever you see them kind of dumping a box, you know, uh, not carefully, that's the problem. Just dropping that box a few inches instead of careful placement will do it. What happens here? Basically, it's an over-ripening effect. The taste is affected, but this is not a health issue. Exactly why it happens is not totally clear, believe it or not, even though it has been examined. But I can give you the most likely scenario, which has to do with the production of ethylene gas that is stimulated by damage to the skin or to the, the pulp. Uh, bananas are uh, climacteric. What that means is that they are capable of ripening even after harvest. 
And you know that, that bananas generally are picked green, right? And they, they harpen. And sometimes they are harpened in a storeroom where they pump in ethylene to harpen it. Well, anyway, ethylene is the banana's own ripening chemical. And uh, this ripening is prompted by an enzyme called ethylene-forming enzyme. This acts on an amino acid called methionine, which is present in the banana. Well, the enzyme is found in cells in the skin and in the pulp. And if you apply any pressure to the banana, such as by dropping uh, the box, that damages the cells, releases the enzyme, that then reacts with the methionine and forms ethylene, and that causes ripening. And the, the gas will diffuse inward in the banana, so it will ripen the middle of the, uh, of the fruit first. So now you know the secret behind these uh, black uh, insides of the bananas. And we're seeing this more and more, and I guess because uh, there are a lot of people working who are not careful enough when they handle those uh, bananas. And I can tell you that it uh, drives the uh, banana producers crazy because people, of course, uh, confront the black inside and they won't buy bananas uh, anymore. So even at home, be careful in how you handle the bananas. Don't, don't drop them. And incidentally, when the banana becomes black on the outside, that doesn't mean that it can't be eaten. Very often, the damage to the skin of the bananas uh, does not result in, in damage to the, uh, to the inside. So there you go. That's the story of uh, black center uh, syndrome. Okay, we have uh, Alex on the line. Alex. Well, thank you for taking my call, uh, Dr. Joe. Seasons, greetings, by the way, to you and thank all you. the folks there at CJAD. Uh, Dr. Joe, I have a question that, that relates to uh, soda water. Um, I'm a big fan of soda water. I drink a lot of it. And I noticed the other day, much, much to my entertainment, what I call the dance of the olives. Now, if you take some manzanilla olives that are stuck with pimentos and you drop say three or four of them into a, a freshly poured glass of soda water, uh, you'll notice that the olives start to gyrate wildly as they gather bubbles on the surface. Right. This is a well-known after a, phenomenon. The, after a short period of time, uh, they'll start sinking to the bottom of the glass. Right. Where they'll spend some time, and then they'll very, very uh, gently float back up to the surface and they'll repeat this dance and then sink back down again. I, I counted about three or four excursions of, of some of these. Right. This is a well-known phenomenon, and we've talked about this in the past. And uh, it happens when carbon dioxide bubbles stick to the, uh, to the olive, and the uh, carbon dioxide is lighter than water, so it will propel the, the uh, olives to the surface. But when the bubbles burst... Uh, there's nothing to keep the uh, uh, the olives uh, at the surface. And the olive, of course, is heavier than water, so it will sink down. But when it sinks down, more carbon dioxide bubbles will attach to its surface, so it will once again go up to, to the top. And when the bubbles burst, it will sink again. So it all has to do with the weight of the carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is lighter than water, so a bubble filled with uh, carbon dioxide will attach to the olives. It will bring them to the top. And when at the top the, the bubbles burst, the CO2 goes off into the air, the olive is heavy, and it sinks to the bottom, and the cycle continues.
So anyway, that's something that you guys can try out over the holidays. And uh, our time is up. Uh, let me wish everyone a very Merry Christmas, which uh, comes our way on Friday. But we will be back with you, same time, same station, next Sunday at 3 o'clock. And until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.